Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we want to thank you so much for our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't believe, Lord, the incredible pain that he experienced, pain that should have been ours, the penalty that should have been ours, as our sin was laid upon him. Father, thank you for so wonderful a Savior. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his death. Thank you that he is alive from the dead. Death could not hold him. And because he conquered sin and conquered death, we have hope today. We have hope of eternal life. We have hope of being in your family by simply putting our trust in Jesus Christ. Not ourselves, not religion, not in religious ritual, but in Jesus and him alone. There's even one in our midst today who has yet to put their trust in him. I pray that they would not let another moment, another morning, another day go by before doing business with you. For those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, we pray that we might be renewed afresh this morning in our love for him. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One friendly undertaker signed his correspondence, eventually yours. Chilling as that sounds, it's true. Death will eventually come for all of us. And what makes today different from every other Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection all the time, but today is a special day set aside when we commemorate the day that death was defeated. Jesus Christ defeated death on Calvary's cross. And one writer said this, Death might seem invincible, but Christ has already defeated it. His victory over death means that when we die as followers of Jesus, we too can place our spirits in the Father's hands. For the Christian, this is our comfort and hope as we stand at the casket of a close friend or loved one who also knew and trusted Christ for salvation, that we will one day enjoy their presence and companionship again in a far better place. When the curtain falls on this life, those of us who know Christ will get a curtain call in heaven. This life was just the rehearsal. Then the real drama begins. And that story will never end. Hope, encouragement, victory, those are all words we associate with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what I want to talk about this morning from Luke chapter 24 is two things. One is the importance of the resurrection. How important is the resurrection to us and to our lives? And number two, I want to talk about the evidence for the resurrection. Luke spends most of chapter 24 in the book of Luke giving us evidences for why Jesus Christ defeated death, why Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. And so we're going to look at the importance of the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection. First, the importance. One writer said it this way, if the resurrection is not historic fact, then the power of death remains unbroken. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? If the resurrection is not historic fact, 
if it's not that's a something that is a time and space event then death remains unbroken and with it the effect of sin and the significance of Christ's death remains uncertified and accordingly believers are yet in their sins precisely where they were before they heard of Jesus' name. If the resurrection isn't a real time-space event, isn't real history, then we're lost. But it is a time and space event. It is something that we celebrate today. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus is alive from the dead. And we can live hopeful lives. Hopeful lives here and now. Hopeful lives in eternity. Josh McDowell, who spent a good part of his life studying the evidences for the deity of Jesus Christ, the evidences for the reliability of the Word of God, the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he said this, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundations, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or, don't miss the or here, folks, or it is the most fantastic fact of history. And as you know, that is the conclusion he has come to. I, I urge you, if you are a bit of a skeptic, by the way, it's not bad to be a skeptic because the first skeptics were the early disciples. The early disciples were skeptics about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're a bit of a skeptic or you'd like more information, I uh, urge you to get the new evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell. He has some 70 or 80 plus pages of evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says this, all but four of the wor major world religions are based on mere philosophical propositions. Of the four that are based on personalities rather than on a philosophical system, only Christianity claims an empty tomb for its founders. G.B. Hardy in his little book, like Countdown, says this, Confucius' tomb, occupied, Buddha's tomb, occupied, Muhammad's tomb, occupied, Jesus' tomb, empty, empty. McDowell concludes, the evidence is in. The decision is clear. The evidence speaks for itself. <clears throat> it says very clearly, Christ is risen indeed. Larry Richards says, the resurrection is proof and promise that death is not the end for anyone. Death is not the end for anyone. Well, let's see what Luke has to tell us in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. As we go through this, I want to, to mention the beauty of this story. And by the way, it's two disciples. It's the story of two disciples on their way to Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. We don't really know where the city of Emmaus is. And we don't even know uh, who these disciples were. One is mentioned, Cleopas. 
is mentioned by name. The second person is unnamed, and we don't know, was it Cleopas' wife? There are those who believe that it was he traveling with his wife on the road to Emmaus, Emmaus and they encountered Jesus along the way. Uh, others believe it was another male disciple. We don't really know. We just know one was Cleopas and the other one was somebody. And they were on their way. What is important about the story is that Luke gives us how many witnesses? Two witnesses. Two witnesses. Two disciples are on their way to Emmaus. You see, for a fact to be established in Israel, you had to have how many witnesses? Two. How many angels witnessed to the women about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Two. Now, not all of the synoptics mention both angels. Some of them only mention one. But when you put all of the synoptic gospels together, you have two angels who witness to the resurrection of Christ. You have two disciples in Luke chapter 24 who witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke does that on purpose. Luke wants us to know that this, that you could, this evidence is so strong you could use it in a court of law. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so strong that you could use this evidence in a court of law. So we have these two disciples. One person said this, The Emmaus story is a literary and spiritual jewel. It is at once a moving story, a testimony to the resurrection, and an explanation of the empty tomb. So that's the importance of the resurrection. It is crucial. If you'd like to read more about the importance of the resurrection to the life of a believer, sometime on your own, not in the next 30 minutes, uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The whole chapter is about the importance of the resurrection. The importance of the resurrection. All right, well, let's, let's see what Luke has to say. Now that same day, two of them... We're going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself, by the way, that's emphatic, you ought to underline that. In Greek, that's emphatic. Jesus himself, the very one, came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Well, there are witnesses are important to Luke. Uh, look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1 and following, and you'll see the importance of witnesses to Luke. And uh, these are not two of the eleven. Be, be clear on that. As we read further in the book of Luke chapter 24, we find these are not two of the eleven disciples, but they are part, verse 33 tells us, that there were other disciples that were with the eleven, with the eleven apostles. These were two of those disciples. They were discussing everything that happened uh, in Jerusalem in the previous days. Now, one writer uh, got into the heart of what Luke is sharing with us here by saying this, feel the emotion as the crucifixion unfolds Judas's disillusionment, Peter's denial, Pilate's concession, the crowd's frenzied screams, the rugged cross, the nail-pierced hands, the bleeding side, the hurried burial, experience with the women, the shock of finding the tomb 
empty. These were the things that were being discussed by these two disciples, the events that had happened to Jesus just days before, arrested at, in the garden at three in the morning. Jesus is dragged before three religious trials before 6 a.m. And then he endures three civil trials before Pilate and Herod and then Pilate again. And he's beaten and he's scourged and has a crown of thorns put upon his head and he's spit upon and he's mocked. At 9 a.m. he's crucified, put on a cross where he would hang for six hours. Six hours. Those who were crucified died usually of asphyxiation because after a while they no longer had the ability to push up and draw in a breath. That's why if they wanted to hasten the death, of one being crucified, they would break their legs so they could no longer push up and take a breath. That's what Jesus endured. That's what they were talking about, about the events of those days. Darkness covered the earth from 12 noon to 3 p.m. In those hours, Jesus uttered three of the seven words that he said from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had to turn away from his son. Why? Because Jesus had become sin. Your sin and my sin. He had become sin and God the Father could no longer look upon him or have fellowship with him. And so Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out from the cross, it is finished. It's a cry of triumph. It doesn't mean that finally the pain is done. It means that it is paid in full. What's paid in full? The price of sin. The price of sin. That phrase, it is finished, was found stamped on bills, paid in full. Jesus paid in full the price of your sin and of my sin. He said from the cross, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he dismissed his spirit. He could not have died, by the way, without dismissing his spirit. He was in control of the entire process. I like the way J. Vernon McGee summarizes what Jesus did for you and for me. By 12 noon, man had done all he could to the Son of God. Then at the noon hour, darkness settled down. The cross became an altar on which the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world was offered. We don't think of the fact that that cross became an altar. An offering as Jesus offered his life for you and for me to pay for our sin. Well, they're discussing everything that happened, the crucifixion, the reports of the resurrection. They are sad and they are discouraged. They are bewildered and they are disillusioned. They thought the reports of the empty tomb were nonsense. They didn't believe he had risen from the dead. 
But verse 15 says, Jesus himself, emphatically, he is the one, comes up beside them and walked alongside them, but they were kept from recognizing him. That simply means this, that the Greek there is what is known as a divine passive. A divine passive. It denotes an action that is actually God's work. In other words, God divinely caused blindness upon these two so they couldn't recognize Jesus. Though they had been with him, been a follower of his, apparently been around him for a meal because their eyes were opened divinely again when he broke bread. Now they weren't at the Last Supper, but apparently at other meals, and when he broke bread, the blindness was taken away divinely and they recognized him. Well, verse 17, we read this. He asked them, this is Jesus, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? I mean, so much had gone on. There was the public trial of Jesus. There was the darkness that covered the land. There was the earthquake that accompanied his death. There was the tearing of the curtain that divides the holy place from the holy of holies. It's torn in two. It's a two-inch thick curtain torn in two from top to bottom. Man didn't do it. God did it. Because of Jesus' death, you and I have free access to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you know Him as Savior, you have access to God. You can go to Him for your needs. You can go to Him for your, for your prayer requests. You can go to Him for every situation that you find yourself in in life. The good and the challenging. As many of you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had a drama in our own lives with our new grand daughter who's doing great by the way we spent the week with them I can't tell you how often we went to the Lord for her and many of you did too and I thank you for that I thank you for that and she's doing well Kathy and I got to hold her little thing right there You can go to God. Take any need to Him. Well, all of these things have stirred Jerusalem. It was hard for them to believe that somebody could have been in Jerusalem and not known. Not known what was going on. Not known what had happened. Not known about Jesus. They stood still. Uh, uh, verse 17, he asked them, what, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Now, this isn't an important point, but I, I kind of chuckled when I read this when my study. Uh, when it says, he asked them, what are you discussing together? Uh, A.T. Robertson, who's a great Greek scholar, uh, he explained the word translated discussing uh, together. It's the word antibalo in Greek. And 
according to Robertson, it means to throw in turn back and forth like a ball from one to the other. And he calls it a picture of conversation. So this word pictures conversation as a ball that you have, then you toss it to the next person and they have, and then they toss it back to you and you have. That is conversation. Now, if you find that you're doing all the talking, it's a monologue, not a conversation. I, I just thought that was an interesting. I love studying words. I love seeing what's behind them. Their faces were downcast. They had a gloomy countenance. Uh, it shows their attitude uh, for all that had happened. And they are skeptics about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they are pretty much hopeless at this point. Now, interestingly, Luke in chapter 24 weaves into his text uh, evidences, at least eight evidences for the resurrection, proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you've never uh, studied those, let me just name them. I'm, I'm going to go through them quickly, more quickly than, uh, than we'd like to, but we don't have time to spend much time on them. The eight things that Luke mentions as proofs of the resurrection, as evidence of the resurrection found in Luke chapter 24 are these. Number one, the change to Sunday worship. The change to Sunday worship. Remember, all of the early disciples were, were Jews. They came to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They came out of Judaism. Now, when do Jews worship? Sabbath day, which is Saturday. Why then all of these disciples begin to worship on Sunday? Well, as acknowledgement of the resurrection. The early church was Jewish, yet it worshiped on Sunday to commemorate the resurrection. The second evidence that Luke shares with us is the stone was rolled away. The stone was rolled away. Now, now, unless you understand what this stone was like, uh, it's hard to make any sense out of that. Well, one writer explains this way. The tomb was sealed shut with a circular flat stone that rolled down a sloping groove till it was securely in front of the entrance to keep out intruders. To roll that stone back up again would require the strength of several men. So the stone was rolled away. The third evidence is the empty tomb. Now, there are all kinds of ways that people come up with to answer the empty tomb. Some say, well, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. But remember, there were soldiers guarding Jesus' tomb. Remember that the women followed and watched where Jesus was buried. That's not a likely explanation that they went to the wrong tomb. Some say, well, the body was stolen. According to Matthew 28, that was known to be a lie even in that day. If it was stolen by his enemies, why didn't they produce the body when the disciples started to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If it was stolen by his disciples, why were they willing to die as martyrs for that which they knew to be a lie? Finally, the most unbelievable of all explanations of the empty tomb is called the swoon theory. Believe me, it's supposed to be held by intelligent people. I question that. 
The swoon theory says that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Now, to believe he didn't die, you have to believe a lot of things. You have to believe the scourging with lead-tipped whips that shredded his back didn't do that much harm to him. You have to believe that the nails that were put through his hands and his feet being hung on the cross, not being able to breathe, was not a problem for him. You have to believe that when they came to break his legs as they did the two thieves on either side of him, they found him to be dead. I think if I'm going to believe a skeptic or a Roman soldier about a dead person, I'm going with the soldier. I think the soldier would know. And just to be sure, what did the soldier do? He took the spear and right into Jesus' side and blood and water flowed from Jesus' body. Now the swoon theory says that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He was laid in the tomb and it was cool and he revived. And left. What they don't explain is, according to John, the grave clothes were laying in Jesus' tomb all in order as if he went right through them. Not messed up, not, not all, uh, all thrown all over the place, strips of cloth thrown over the, all over the place. They were in order as he had been laying there, and he went right through them. If he swooned and came to consciousness in the grave, how did he get out of those grave clothes? So that's the empty tomb. I'm spending much too much time. I knew that was going to happen. Number four, the significance of two angels, the same significance as two disciples, it verified the resurrection. It verified the resurrection. More to say on that, but let's move on. Number five, the disciples changed from fearful to triumphant. Earlier, they were dispirited. They were a fearful group. And then 50 days later, they're boldly proclaiming the resurrection. What could have caused a change like that if Jesus didn't, wasn't raised from the dead? That's number five. Number six is the significance of women as the first witnesses. Jesus' first and second appearances after the, his death and, uh, crucifixion, death, and burial, were the women who were the first to be told of the resurrection by angels. Now, two, uh, one writer explains it this way, the witness of women was not acceptable in those days. Nevertheless, Luke records their testimony, though they were not considered to be credible witnesses by Jewish society in that day. In other words, if you wanted to perpetrate a hoax, you would not use women as witnesses in that day. Number seven, the seventh evidence, is the disciples were not expecting the resurrection. Notice these disciples, they didn't expect the resurrection. Notice Peter's reaction. He was confused. He didn't believe. The disciples were the first skeptics. And the eighth evidence that Luke gives us of the resurrection is that the grave clothes were left in an orderly fashion. John 20, verse 30 and following tells us about that. The grave clothes were undisturbed. They lay there in an orderly fashion. 
as if he simply came through them with the face covering, the, the cloth covering his face, laid there with the rest of the grave clothes. How do you explain that? And that's not even all of the that's not even all of the evidences of the resurrection. Well, let's move on. One of the name Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem that you don't know the things that have happened there? What things he asked? And then they explained about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet. Well, he was much more than the prophet. He can only be a prophet to somebody who doesn't understand who he is, doesn't understand his purpose, uh, his person, doesn't understand that he is God incarnate. He's not just a prophet. He is God incarnate. The prophet. The prophet. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and the rulers, handed him over to be sentenced to death, crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find the body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. These things have stirred Jerusalem. It was hard for them to understand that he could not known, have known about them. Well, they had hope, they said, that he was the one who re would redeem them. They hadn't put their trust in him. They hadn't put their faith in him. They had only hoped but they figured he couldn't be the Messiah because he was executed. He couldn't be the Messiah because he was executed. They thought the women were speaking nonsense. They couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus' body was not there. Verse 25, he said to them, now Jesus answers them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. No doubt he went to passages of the Old Testament such as Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 55, Psalm 16, Psalm 100, Psalm 2, all Old Testament passages from various parts of the Scripture. The book of Deuteronomy where, he, where uh, Moses is told that there would be a prophet like him who would one day come to the nation of Israel. All of these Old Testament passages that they overlooked and Jesus uses the Old Testament passages to teach them, and he calls them foolish and ignorant. One writer explained, an individual who sees things from a distorted perspective, he or she has not adopted the divine viewpoint. It's not enough, the writer says, to have correct information. We must be able to interpret it correctly. 
See, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, a passage which I urge you to look at on your own, says that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Those who have the Spirit of God can be led by the Spirit of God and taught by the Spirit of God, but those who do not know God, Jesus Christ as their Savior, who do not know God through Jesus, they don't have the Spirit of God living within them. So spiritual things cannot be figured out by them. You've got to have the Spirit of God living within you, and the Spirit of God only comes to live within those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to have correct information. We must be able to interpret it correctly. Now, notice they weren't rebuffed for refusing to accept his words. They weren't rebuffed for refusing to accept the words of their friends. They weren't rebuffed for, using, for refusing to accept the word of angels. Why were they rebuffed? They were rebuffed because they didn't believe the word of God. The Old Testament. You see, everything they needed and all that you and I need is found in this book. Everything they needed and all that you and I need is found in this book, found in the Word of God. Well, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Their eyes were opened. Again, it was divine intervention. It was God's intervention that opened their eyes to see who Jesus was. There are those who believe that perhaps when Jesus broke the bread, they saw the nail prints in his hands. Remember, Jesus will carry in his body for all eternity. He will have the nail prints in his hands, the nail prints in his feet, and the, the hole in his side. He'll have that for all eternity. When you and I reach heaven and look upon our Savior, he'll still have the marks of our suffering that should have been our suffering, the marks of our shame on his body. The compact guide to the Christian life said after his resurrection, Jesus did not discard his humanity. For all eternity, he bears in his glorified body the scars of crucifixion, the marks of a love so incredible that it must leave the angels speechless. Well, there is excitement in what they're, what they're sharing about Jesus and what he has shared with them. They said their hearts were burning within them. By the way, I don't have time to turn, but that's a reference to Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 and 9, where Jeremiah said, I didn't want to preach your word, but I couldn't stop preaching your word because your word was burning in my heart. Because every time I preach the word, I get persecuted. You can look it up. Jeremiah 20, verses 7 to 9. Our hearts were burning within us. Our hearts were burning within us. 
You remember when you were a new believer? And everything was so fresh and new in the word of God and then a few years go by and it becomes commonplace and second place in our lives and we aren't as excited anymore. These disciples' hearts were burning as they heard Jesus speaking the word of God to them. and Their hearts were burning. I wonder if the, today that too many of us get heartburn over the word of God rather than burning hearts over the word of God. What do I mean by that? The Word of God challenges us. It challenges you and it challenges me and it challenges our lifestyle. It challenges our thinking. It challenges our, our uh, emotions. It challenges every part of our lives. And we don't like to be challenged. Word of God says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Oh, wait a second. I can't become angry if I want to. I have a right to be angry, do you? Word of God says, forgive as Christ forgave you. Well, how did he forgive you? He forgave everything. A debt you and I couldn't pay. We're to forgive others in that same way. But how many of us live in unforgiving relationships, sometimes with our own spouse? The Word of God says it is God's will that you be sanctified, that you avoid sexual immorality, yet so many believers are involved in sexual immorality or involved in pornography. The Word of God says do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, and yet it's so easy for some people not to go to church. Now, by the way, it always, it always concerned me that preachers would rail against be, you know, uh, you need to be meeting together. And he's talking to people who are there. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's railing and railing and railing. Do not forsake the assembly. He said, Mister, did you notice they're there? <laughs> but it becomes too easy sometimes to say other things are more important than the people of God and assembling with them. The Word of God says, Control your body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen. The Word of God says, Do not return an insult for an insult, but rather a blessing. You say, If I ever did that, I'd never be able to talk to my wife. You get it? It's a joke. <laughs> I believe that, by the way, that comes from 1 Peter 3. I believe that it would revolutionize marriages if husbands and wives would take to heart those words. Well, I'm off the track a little bit. Okay. Then their eyes were opened. They recognized him. He disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us and rode and opened the scripture to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those assembled to get together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Now he appeared to Simon especially because Simon did what? Denied him. Simon denied him. And so he especially appeared to Simon that, that's what our Lord does. 
If you failed spectacularly or if you failed just a little bit before the Lord, remember, He reaches out to you. Satan wants to destroy you. Satan wants to bring back to your mind all the ways you failed God. And Jesus is there to say, my grace is sufficient for you. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today, I pray that you'll put your faith in the one who's resurrected from the dead. If you are a believer, I pray that you'll take seriously, that we'll all take seriously the word of God. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We are not alone. Jesus walks with us in the disappointments of life. He can replace gloom with joy. His word is sufficient for us. He went before us in death and is victorious so that we don't have to fear death. And we can tell others about a Savior who conquered death. I'll close with this quote. No story tells us more impressively the truth that a divine Savior walks beside us all the way of our earthly journey. It is pathetic that our eyes are so dim by unbelief that we fail to realize his presence. We walk and are sad while we might be rejoicing in his compassion. Lord, what a marvelous Savior we have. Our hearts break when we think about all he suffered for us, suffering that we deserved and he did not, but that he willingly took, because that was the only way we could be right with you. And for those who are here this morning who have never understood this truth, I pray that they might understand it this day as your spirit draws them and they put their trust in Jesus. And for those of us who have done that, help us not to be lackadaisical about our faith. We pray in Jesus.